Well, while you're finding your way to Philippians chapter 3 this morning, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and find your way there. It's page 1722 in your Reformation Study Bible. While you're turning there, I wanted to tell you about a story that came to mind as I was studying this passage this week. It came to mind because it seems to kind of get at the heart of what Paul's going to say to us here in Philippians 3. And the story is Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. And the story goes that Ferdinand the Prince is on a voyage to Italy when a great tempest comes and destroys the ship. And Ferdinand is separated from the crew so that he washes ashore on this vacant island alone but alive. When what does his shipwreck-weary eye see but a beautiful young lady? On this otherwise desolate island, he beholds Miranda. And as the story goes, Miranda and her father, Prospero, in a great story of betrayal, had been marooned on this island some 12 years prior to Ferdinand's arrival. And Miranda, having grown up on this island, has seen only... Two men, and now a third, Ferdinand. She's known her father, Prospero, and also their household servant. And now Ferdinand comes on the scene, and as you can imagine, if by no other means than your knowledge that it's Shakespeare, and come on, what's he going to do? The two fall madly in love. They're passionately swept up with one another. They're obsessed with one another. And as they're beelining it toward marriage... Prospero, the the wise father, steps in. Prospero was as wise as he was loving. See, he knows that Ferdinand and Miranda's passionate and impetuous love is refined and made into pure and patient love by labor, by work, by waiting. And so Prospero, the wise father, he devises this scheme wherein he will test the strength and quality of Ferdinand's love for his daughter and also provide for them an opportunity for this refinement into pure love. And what he's about to do will seem cruel to you, the reader, just as it seems cruel to Ferdinand and Miranda. But what you don't realize is that all the while Prospero has been orchestrating the events of this tempest and their meeting together so as to give them true love together. It's selfless. What he's going to do is selfless, desiring for them to have pure love. So what Prospero does is he falsely accuses Ferdinand, the prince, of something he didn't do just so he can imprison Ferdinand and put him to manual labor. And he commands Ferdinand to move thousands of heavy logs onto the beach into a big pile so that in doing so he would prove the measure of his love for Miranda. So we fast forward in the story and this log moving, this manual labor, this work has been going on for some time when we, the curtain opens on Act 3, Scene 1. And when the curtain opens, you see Ferdinand there sweating, buckling beneath the burden of yet another log as he's moved today, the day before, and yesterday, the day before that, the day before that, sunrise to sunset. And he opens his mouth to speak. And what would you expect a man of such burden to to say? Well, it depends on how worthy this girl is. It depends on how valuable she is in his sight. 
If she's merely a passionate convenience to him, like any of us guys would say, come on, this isn't worth it. This is ridiculous. No woman is worth this. But he doesn't say that. Listen to what he says. This, my hard task, would be as heavy to me as horrible. But the mistress which I serve quickens what's dead in me and makes my labors pleasures. When you love, you do what is difficult willingly. When the object of your affection is valuable and precious in your sight, you do what is painful joyfully because the object of your affection, the object of your service makes your labors pleasures. If all your thoughts are consumed by what you're losing to gain that love, well, then your, your work will be heavy and horrible. But if your eyes are fixed on the one whom you will gain through those labors, then your heaviest burdens will be light to you. Your deepest sorrows will be turned to joy. Your greatest losses will be gain. Essentially, Paul tells us that following Christ follows the same principle. In a nutshell, Philippians 3 tells us that if closeness to Christ is your most valuable gain, then it will be a pleasure to, to suffer the loss of all else. So turn with me to Philippians 3. We'll hear Paul say it himself as he begins this way. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Two points of context here. First of all, this church that he's writing to is in distress, okay? The Philippian church is noted as a very faithful congregation, very steadfast, but there are some troublemakers whom we'll talk about in a minute. So they're in distress, and Paul says rejoice. Second point of context, Paul himself is writing this, not from cloud nine, dancing in a congregation somewhere singing because all of his troubles are far away. He's writing this from the filthy, cold stone floor of a first century prison. And his word, rejoice, resounds ever more loudly in our ears because of it. See, in a moment, he's going to caution the Philippian church about these troublemakers. He's going to give them all kinds of warnings and things. He's also going to talk about his own sufferings, but those potentially disturbing conversations are, pre, are, are prefaced by rejoice in the Lord. And I think that's instructive to us. And so he begins, focus your delight and joy on him. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He's saying, listen, I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Rejoice in the Lord. Put your hope and your joy in him. And now having done so, we can talk about these troublemakers that are distressing you. He goes on, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What on earth is he saying? Who are these people that he has such choice words for? Well, in his time, there was a group of Jewish Christians or ostensibly Christians known as Judaizers. And they were called Judaizers because their belief was that if you were a Gentile becoming a Christian, you had to become Jewish-sized, circumcised, and follow the customs of Israel's Old Testament law. Circumcision 
in particular was an important sign to the Jewish faith because in it was the sign of the covenant of God. In the Old Testament, it was the sign that they were the people of God. But symbolically, what circumcision represented was the cutting away of flesh that represented man's impurity. And so circumcision as a, as a sign, what it intended to communicate was that the people of God are marked by the cutting away of their fleshly impurities. And listen to how Paul characterizes them. He says of these Judaizers, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's not brashly hurling whatever insults pop into his mind. He's actually leveling very precise, sharply focused attacks on three specific virtues held as the source of all religious confidence by these Judaizers. First, he calls them dogs. In the first century, dogs were not man's best friend. They were not part of the family. They were not regal of all beasts. They were scavengers. They were like coyotes. They fed on trash, on roadkill. And so, to Jewish ears, Paul's choice of words here, dog, is a resounding and pointed metaphor for one who is unclean by what they eat. Well, that attacks a certain virtue of the Judaizers' religion. See, their their confidence was placed in their dietary laws that they obeyed religiously for the purpose of remaining pure before the Lord. And Paul takes a reversal of their virtue and calls them scavengers. But he's not finished yet. He goes on and he says, you're also evildoers. He calls them evildoers, which is a a sharp irony because these people prided themselves on being righteous doers. And then the nail in the coffin, the final insult, if you will, he gives his most scathing epithet so far. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. And just on the surface, even in English, it's communicated clearly that what he intends here is a pun on their circumcision rite. But even in the Greek, it's more profound because what he does is he twists a couple of letters. And he, instead of saying circumcision, he says mutilator of the flesh. What he intends to communicate there is that their circumcision, if it's only flesh deep, is about as worthless as the skin they've cut off. Okay, is that graphic enough? And just to make these labels stick, I love this. Paul, in the Greek, he alliterates each of those three insults. (laughs) Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Actually, it begins with what in English would would be our kappa, or our K, letter K. So essentially, in the Greek, he's saying, watch out for those crud-eating, corrupt-living cutters of the flesh. You can almost sense, like, the crud, corrupt, cutters, the wince, and the sort of wipe the eye. I got a little on me there. Crud, corrupt, cutters. He makes these stick. He's taken the virtues of the Judaizers, and he's turned them, saying that if that's where their confidence is, then they don't have a leg to stand on. Their virtues are worthless because they're only flesh deep. Then he explains himself. For we are the circumcision... Who's we? He he defines them. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. That is to say, my ability to be perfect, my innate virtue, my whatever I may achieve by my own means, by my own nature, 
In these things, these fleshly things, I do not put my ultimate confidence. One of the consistent teachings of the New Testament, especially for Paul's writings, is that circumcision is actually, in the New Covenant, a matter of the heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, and he says so explicitly in Romans. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So if you're tracking, you're thinking, okay, well then, if not a Jew outwardly and circumcision physically, then what is it? He says, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. There's a true circumcision that takes place when we become a follower of Christ. And what that means is there's a spiritual cutting away, putting to death, separation from the deeds of our flesh, the things that we would otherwise trust in and put our confidence in besides Christ. It's putting away our self-sufficiency. And the person who has received this kind of heart circumcision, Paul is saying, lives as one whose human virtues are no longer accessible to him, no longer a source of spiritual confidence. They've been cut off and thrown away. Okay, but what does all this circumcision talk really look like in, in real life? Okay, I recognize that there's a, a great chasm between this language and sort of our vernacular and what we live in each day. And so what does this look like to put our confidence in the flesh instead of the work in the, of the Spirit in us. I just wrote down three examples. We put our confidence in the flesh when we're self-sufficient and have no practical use for prayer or the Word. Prayer and the Word are the instruments of the Holy Spirit promised to bring about that kind of heart circumcision, that heart change. We're self-sufficient. We're also putting our confidence in the flesh when we cherish our luxuries or our status or our material things maybe more than we ought. And listen, we're all guilty of that on some level. We've all put our hope and our, our treasure, our hearts, on the, on the material things more than we ought. We so easily forget that there's something of infinitely greater value calling for our attention. Third, I wrote down, we put our confidence in the flesh when we're consumed by anxiety, fear, or achievement. We try to put our hope within ourselves. I think at the root of all three of those, anxiety, fear, achievement, is trying to put our, our confidence in ourselves and our ability to make ourselves prosperous, to make ourselves whole. And Paul says that the true people of God are those who have spiritually cut away those self-sufficiencies. That's what he means by circumcision. We are the circumcision. For we are the circumcision. And listen to how Paul identifies the people who live this way, who worship by the Spirit of God. Why does he pick worship of all things as the key identifier of a people who live in such a way as to die to themselves and their self-sufficiencies and live again to the will of God? Well, I think on the, on the sort of first read-through, the impression that stuck with me was Christ's words about worshiping in spirit and truth. I think in the context of his sort of discussion about the Old Testament laws, we ought to acknowledge that probably what he intends here is to say that we are, are those who live according to the Spirit. We worship according to the Spirit, not as they did in the Old Testament in this temple, according to these customs, um, not by these physical and fleshly means, but by the Spirit of God alone as our only mediator for worship. But I think there's something more going on here. 
I think you can read rest, the rest of Paul's writings about worship. Anytime he speaks of worship, there's this central theme in his theology about worship, and it's this. Worship at its core is a cycle of death and resurrection in you. Central to Paul's theology of worship is this idea of death and resurrection, which fits nicely, doesn't it, in the context of what he's speaking on here. That we would put away the old self and choose to live according to the will of God. See, worship culturally for us, that's such a paradigm shift because we hear of worship ministries, of worship leaders, of a worship service, of a night of worship, of a worship CD, and really all we mean by that is music, right? Worship culturally has been distilled down to mean music, and I'm telling you that's not what the Bible teaches about worship. Music is one important, I think, maybe I'm biased, part of worship, but music is not the whole of worship. Worship is actually more all-encompassing than that. It's everything we do in life, whether you do it for the glory of God or for someone else's glory. Everything you do in life is, in some sense, an act of service or of worship. And Paul means, by the Spirit, he means not according to my flesh, but a flesh that has been put to death, one that I have decided and determined to stand here in the presence of the Lord. Take, for example, what we're doing here this morning. You decided not to sleep in. You decided not to, whatever it was you robbed yourself of, to be here on time. I'm waiting for laughter because on time. Whatever you had to rob yourself of to get here and to be in worship is in some sense a sacrifice for you to be here. But there's a spiritual, there's a spiritual depth to this. There's another layer. When we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, it ought to open up your eyes to something, God's majesty and our own sinfulness. We ought to become profoundly aware of our need for grace and His forgiveness when we stand in the presence of the Almighty God. And so our, our spiritual act of worship is that we would put to death our own hope that we're going to approach God and really wow Him with our singing this morning, or we're really going to be diligent and study the Word hard. We surrender that, and we want God to speak through His Spirit so he's saying that worship is a mark of a true believer because it's a mark of one who doesn't put his confidence in himself. And I just wanted to point, of, of all the passages we could turn to to see Paul's theology on worship, there's maybe one that's concise and, and well familiar to you, and it's Romans chapter 12. He says it this way, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Listen to that juxtaposition of two phrases, or two words, living and sacrifice. That is, present your bodies as one who has sacrificed, put to death, crucified his flesh and the passions of it on his cross, and now live again, walking, living according to the will of the Lord, holy and acceptable to God, that is set apart exclusively for his purposes, which is your spiritual, there it is, worship. So Paul continues to confront legalism, but he tries a different tact. He's going back and talking now about the Judaizers in a different way. I guess he figured the crud, corrupt, cutters thing was going to get him so far, and so he tries a different tact. Now what he's going to do is essentially 
take on the religious accolades, look at all the deeds of their flesh, all the things that they do spirit, to have their spiritual confidence, and he's going to step it up and say, actually, I do them better than you do. And he's going to boast in how much greater his religious accolades are than theirs, only so he can then reject those things as reliable sources of confidence. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's saying, you want to compare religious accolades? Okay, here we go. Circumcised on the eighth day in strict compliance to the Old Testament law of the people of Israel, born into the Old Testament people of God, of the tribe of Benjamin, perhaps the most steadfast of the 12 tribes of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews. My parents were Jewish. I was raised in Israel's customs, and they saw to it that I had the best education you could have in Jerusalem under the most famous rabbi of my day. Paul's point is that he's a privileged insider in both his birth and his upbringing, but there's more. It's not just that he's superior by nature of his inheritance, but also he's superior by his personal accomplishments. He goes on, as to the law, a Pharisee, the most elite, most respected group of Old Testament law-observing Jews of his day. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now that one might ring a little funny. If you know Paul's testimony, it makes sense. What he's saying, let me tell you Paul's testimony. He was, when he was Saul, before his name was changed to Paul, remember he was converted on the Damascus road in a blinding light. He beheld God's glory, repented of his sin, became a follower of Christ. By the way, the gospel, confronted with God's glory, repentant of sin, walking according to his will. Paul was converted in that way, and he was also, at that time, as when he was Saul, a Pharisee. And Pharisees were not friends of the church. Pharisees viewed the Christian church as this uprising following a heretic named Jesus, whom they had a hand in crucifying. And Paul's zeal was such that he was not satisfied in merely denouncing Christianity. He actually had to then go and hunt them down. So he says, I had zeal such that I would persecute the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a heavy word. He means to say, as far as it is perfect for any to keep the law perfectly, I've done it. And as far as it is possible for me to do that, I've done it. Blameless, that's a heavy word. When Paul said he had more reason than anyone to put confidence in his flesh, that wasn't empty bragging. There's truth in what he's saying. He excelled all of his peers in heritage and accomplishments and in purity of keeping the law, even surpassing these Judaizers whom he's presently warning the church against, which makes his next statement all the more poignant when he says, but whatever gain I had, you know, these are unbelievably impressive accolades of mine, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul leveraged it all. He counted it as lost for the sake of following Christ. And that word counted is significant. It, it's actually a leadership term. And Paul use it, uses it in such a way as not to direct others and lead others to do something, but he's reflecting it back on himself and saying, I have, in a sense, what he's saying is I have directed my heart. I have led my passions to consider these things as loss. Anything I would otherwise be tempted to trust in, my wealth, my status, my birth, my achievements, I've regarded them as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. 
And then he takes it up another notch. That wasn't good enough, I guess. He goes on and expands the umbrella. He says, not only whatever gain I had, but everything. He says, I count everything, not just my birth, my upbringing, my many accolades, but everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's as if Paul has drawn a ledger and he assesses his life and he's taking account of everything he is and has. And in a dramatic moment of reversal, he takes the list that bleeds onto the second page of gains, things that he could otherwise place his confidence and trust in. And in a great reversal, he moves it to the lost column. And then he writes under gain, knowing Christ. As if to say all these other things, if I had to pay all of them to gain this, it was worth it. And there's a very true sense in which Paul is writing this also to you. You are the church of Christ. You are an extension of the church that he's writing directly to in Philippi. So imagine that Paul is here today and he hands you a ledger On one column, it's written gain, and on the other column, it's written loss. And he writes in crimson ink, knowing Christ under gain, and then he hands you the pen and he says, now what will you write? What is it worth to you to follow this Christ? Let me ask it differently. Is there anything in your life that you're unwilling to write loss over? And yeah, that's painful. In a moment, he's going to call that suffering, in fact. But it's something you willfully surrender for closeness to Christ. And if Christ is your most valuable gain, then it will be a pleasure to lose all else for him. Paul continues, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When you think of suffering, you tend to think of sudden, cataclysmic, tragic things that are forced upon you, involuntary suffering. Well, I think that's certainly not off the table for Paul, as his experience includes many sufferings, literal sufferings. And it's certainly not off the table for you either, but I think there's there's another sense of suffering that he intends, that he allows here. It's the suffering of willful obedience. It's the suffering of one who determines before the Lord, who counts as lost before the Lord, that he would lay down whatever things might otherwise be a gain or a source of confidence. There's a separation involved, and that feels like suffering. It's the suffering of willful surrender. And once again, that's a lot of high and lofty thoughts of surrender and what does that really look like? Well, I I can't speak for you and your examples, and I think in a lot of ways it would be far better if I knew you well and I could call you up on stage and have you share examples of when willful surrender of, uh, of of your things, when willful obedience felt like suffering, but I only know myself best. And it's not because I'm the best example of these things. It's just because they are easy for me to remember occasions when God 
has worked this out in my own life. I, I wrote down three arenas of life, moral, financial, and time. And I asked myself, how does obedience to Christ feel like suffering in each of these areas? First, with moral obedience, Julie and I have antenna TV for a really good reason. When you stand on one leg and sort of do one of these things and your arm is facing the right direction with the tinfoil, you might get three channels at our house. And so when many of you ask me, and I've been asked so many times, did you see the Florida State game? My answer is always no. I'm sorry, I missed it. We're entitled as 21st century young people to have any manner of movie and and show streamed into our living room. But it's one very simple and practical thing that we counted as loss as a family. And the reason was we were convicted at some point. Uh, In my life, when I was in college, I had cable, and I found myself absorbed in the television shows. And half the time, come on, they weren't appropriate. They weren't helping me toward finding Christ, toward knowing Him completely. Is that suffering? I, I think it is. But listen, it's, it's suffering made easy. It's, it's maybe an overstatement in your ears because you know what I get out of it. You know what I gain, which is closer knowledge of Christ. What about financial obedience? Well, Julie and I tithe to this church, and we, some people write their tithe check once a week. Uh, we do once a month, and so it's less frequent, and therefore sort of the accumulation of the whole month of tithe. And so it's a bigger number, and it's painful to write that number on the check. And I'm telling you, it's not just sometimes it's painful. It's almost every time painful. On top of that, we give to some church plants and missionaries, and every time one of your students uh, writes a letter for a mission trip, things like that that come up that the Lord gives us opportunity to to support. We do, and and that's not a pat on my back. I'm telling you honestly, it's painful, and it hurts, and, and sometimes it hasn't been done. Sometimes I say that Julie's got a better heart than me about these things. Sometimes I've said, I'm sorry, we've done enough. It's over. No more missionary kids going to Africa or wherever they're going. I can't get another one of these letters and write another check. It's just not going to happen, and then sometimes she'll, I think, secretly write the check for me and send it. Uh, yeah, she's guilty over there. Listen, it's painful sometimes to be obedient, but the Lord has never once left me in need. And I've been in those situations like you. You say, no, 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 you don't understand. Tithing right now, it's irresponsible. I've felt sometimes like tithing is irresponsible. When my air conditioning died, Noah, our, our firstborn, was on the way, and the roof had just been repaired, okay? Add up the money. We're in debt up to our eyeballs. We have almost zero in savings. I'm literally looking down the barrel of one paycheck left and we're done. And we tithe. Why? And listen, I'm so uncomfortable sharing this because it's like one of those things you don't want your left hand to know what your right hand is doing, but it's for the sake of this illustration. What I want you to get out of this is not, ooh, how high and holy Ryan is. Forget about that. I'm asking you, is Christ worth your belief? And is your belief so true that you would actually write in your checkbook and confirm with your feet what your mouth has uttered. Because we wrote that check and we're not rolling in it. But gosh, we're here. It it meant that we had to change our date night. You know, we do a cheaper date night. We make peanut butter sandwiches and go to the beach and sit on the bench and have a basically free date. 
instead of eating out, you know? Big deal, really, come on. What we gained in Christ is seeing His church grow. That was more lasting, more valuable to us. Lastly, time, and then I'll hurry along. My last two vacations have been interrupted by a funeral. And I tell you that because, you know, you don't really sympathize with that because it's like, okay, you know, someone passed away, you can't help that. And how, you know, what a jerk you are for even suggesting that that would be an inconvenience to you. Well, I was on vacation. I'm here almost every single Sunday, every week of the year. I finally get a week off, and somebody needs a mus- musician for their, for, their, for their funeral. The first was somebody I dearly loved in this church, and I, I wanted to be here anyway. Whether I was playing or not, I would have been here. The second was a woman that my family had a hand in not leading to Christ, but certainly in sort of the maturing of their family and and their faith. Particularly my parents had a hand in that. And so I felt obligated as the son to be at her bedside as she literally died in front of me. Sorry, honey, vacation's got to take a hold. I'm going to go hold a dying woman's hand and sing some hymns with a grieving family. Whether you tragically lose something in life or you willfully surrender it, there's a type of suffering that begins in your heart. Like Paul, you have to count it. You have to desire in your heart to set your mind on what is more infinitely valuable before you can ever be prepared to lose it. But if closeness to Christ is what you gain, then it will be the pleasure of your life to lose all else for him. which is what Paul says next. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count. Direct my heart to consider them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share, in the NASB they add, in the fellowship of his sufferings. And you say, well, who wants to sign up for that fellowship? Suffering. Hey, guys, we're going to go suffer. Who wants to sign up? Paul does. And that's significant. It's his highest aim. That he would follow the example of Christ, which is what he says next, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We who believe in Christ are becoming by his spirit at work in us more like Christ, but it's not because we look more, it's not that we look more like him because we just do better things and we work harder, we go to church more often, we, whatever the religious things are, the list that Paul's got running. When the Holy Spirit gets a grip of our hearts, we become more like him when we worship and worship Again, redefining the term is a matter of death and resurrection. It's a matter of putting to death my agenda, my will, my passions, my desires, anything else that I would otherwise place confidence in than Christ, putting that to death so that I can live according to His desires for me, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. When we leverage our lives as an ongoing service of worship under the Lord, we become walking illustrations of the cross, an empty tomb. The world ought to look at you and see how you live your life, how you arrange your accounts, how you manage your time, and they ought to see the cross and the empty tomb.
one who has put to death their flesh and its desires and risen again to use those things that God has gifted you for the purpose of serving and knowing him better. And you say, okay, I get it. Counting everything as loss for the gain of Christ, okay. But what does that actually look like practically? I'll say just three things and close. First, it, earlier I offered a few arenas of life, morality, financial, and temporal, or time, how you manage your time, in which obedience may feel like suffering. And so maybe you want to add to those categories, or maybe you want to take those three categories and later as an exercise, ask yourself this, is there anything I'm unwilling to write loss over morally, financially, with my time? Maybe you add to that my family with my decisions, my business. Secondly, I think considering all things lost in your life ought to cause you to consider whether anything, whether good or bad, okay, that's key, we'll immediately think of the bad things that will distract us from Christ, but anything in your life that is a good thing or a bad thing that you have or that you do in this world that might be detrimental or not making progress toward closeness to Christ. If there's anything on that list making you more absorbed with yourself, leading you to become less given to obedience or less interested in knowing Christ more deeply, then Paul would use in rather graphic circumcision language, cut it off and be done with it. It's worthless. If it's flesh deep, it's worthless. And whatever gains and accolades you may have, whatever things that may draw you away from Christ, it's not worth it. If it's not bringing you closer to that which will last, then count it loss. And finally, counting Christ as your only gain in life and all else lost means that when you suffer in life, whether that suffering is tragic and involuntary or willful and voluntary, whatever else you suffer in life, your joy can never be taken from you if it's fixed on him who will never be taken from you. you pray with me and we'll ask that the Lord would, would do that with us, do that for us. And I'm going to, at the beginning of my prayer, if you won't charge me with any kind of irreverence, I want to pray the lo- a line out of Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. And it comes from the lips of Ferdinand and it's only one sentence long. And he speaks this to Miranda and I want you to hear his heart in it and let's pray this to the Lord. Jesus, the second I saw you, my heart rushed to serve you and be your slave. Lord, those are heavy words that we would be your slave. It means that we give up freedoms, that we would serve you. It means we wouldn't serve ourselves. Oh, God, that we would know Jesus and come close to him means there are other things in this life of lesser value that you may call us to lay down. And Lord, when that day comes that our gains are taken from us, whether tragically in a moment or as a process, Lord, through our lives, as we grow and come to love you more, And as we willingly surrender those things, God, we pray that in those moments you would give us the grace to count you our greatest gain and all else is loss. That at the end of it all, we may find ourselves in you completely on the literal day of resurrection, God, that 
you would raise us up prepared well for eternity with you in worship. All this we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.